So a lot of the self-imposed heart issues that you as a disciple face every single day could be fixed if you simply remember to focus on your Savior, not on your behavior. If we learned to obsess over Jesus' behavior, if we learned to obsess over his perfect life that he lived for us and that has been credited to us and not neurotically obsess over our own, which we all do, right? If we did that, then our lives would be remarkably more relaxed. I mean, imagine that, a relaxed Christian. Can it be? And if we learn to keep our gaze on Jesus, we'd be a lot more enjoyable to be around. We'd have more joy and less anxiety, less morbid introspection where we neurotically analyze every aspect of our spiritual lives. In short, we'd be free. Free. Who doesn't want to be free? The problem with evangelicalism is that we have bought into the idea that the most important thing about us is our obedience. That's simply not true. The most important thing about us is not our obedience. Now, yes, should we obey God's word? Duh. But that's not the most important thing about us. Why? Well, even the Pharisees obeyed, didn't they? The Pharisees kept all the rules. But where did that get them? Condemned by Jesus. And that's not a good thing. Where the Pharisees went wrong is what they thought about God. They thought that God would approve of them if they obeyed. They didn't think of God as a God of grace. And that's why they hated Jesus. They thought of God as a heavy taskmaster who was only interested in people keeping the rules. Now think about that. If that's how you view God, somebody who's only interested in human beings keeping the rules, what kind of God is that? That his main focus is that you keep the rules? Do you want to serve a God like that? Who's only interested in everybody towing the line, everybody keeping the rules? That's how the Pharisees were. They viewed God as a heavy taskmaster who was only interested in people keeping the rules. And if you stepped out of line, then zap, you got hit with God's proverbial lightning bolt. And then you'd get hit with the Pharisees' lightning bolts. You've heard me say many times through the years that the most important thing about you is what you think when you think of God because it will determine every dimension of your life. The most important thing about us is what we are thinking about God at any given moment. Who do we conceive God to be? Do we think of him as a heavy taskmaster with a trigger finger who loves to throw lightning bolts at people when they step out of line? Or do we think of him as a God of kindness and grace? A God of kindness and grace when we do step out of line, which we all do all the time. Are we obsessing over our behavior? Are we obsessing over our obedience? Or are we obsessing over Jesus' obedience for us? Are we thinking about the fact that we are in union with him, connected 
with him? Are we thinking about the fact that we are blameless in God's eyes, that we've been credited with Christ's righteousness, adopted into his family? That should be our focus. In short, the gospel should be what we obsess over, think about, rehearse, and preach to our own hearts. Not do this, don't do that, wear this, don't wear that, don't drink or smoke or chew or go with girls that do. I had a seminary professor who used to say that a lot. Don't drink, smoke, or chew or go with girls that do. He was pretty old, and I think he didn't realize he said it all the time. And that's the main takeaway I took from his class. (laughs) It was a phrase that's been around that sums up people trying to be good enough. Don't drink alcohol, don't smoke cigarettes, don't chew tobacco, and don't go with, you young people, that means date, don't go with a girl who does those things. These are man-made rules that are just that man-made, a list of do's and don'ts. And this is exactly what the Colossians were struggling with. So let's look at it. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. The Colossian church heard the grace of God in truth from Epaphras, who planted their church. They heard about the free favor of God given to sinners, but now they're being told by some false teachers who were creeping into the church that They shouldn't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do. Colossians 2, beginning with verse 16, hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now notice the the therefore in verse 16. In light of all that Paul has just said that we've been looking over the last several weeks, the Colossians should not give these false teachers the time of day. Paul just said that they are united to Christ, they are in him, they enjoy all the benefits of the gospel, they are forgiven, Jesus paid it all, Satan and company have been defeated at the cross, so the Colossians are safe now, they are secure in Christ. And because all of this is true, because Jesus plus nothing equals everything, the Colossians don't have to listen to these false teachers. So what were these false teachers saying? As I mentioned last night, last night, last week, They were peddling some form of works-based righteousness closely connected to the Mosaic law. Peddling this uh, works righteousness where you could do things to earn God's favor. They were probably suggesting that these Gentile believers should be circumcised and adhere to certain aspects of the Mosaic law. What you could eat, what you could drink, what you could wear. And that's why Paul says that they should not listen to anyone who says things like, you can't eat that and you can't drink that. These false teachers were probably insisting that the Colossians go back under all the food and dietary laws that were given to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. You know the verses that you underline and highlight when you read the Old Testament? You shall not eat a rock badger, and you underline that. It's like, that's good. Those kinds of verses. Now, we may not have people telling us today that we have to be circumcised like an Old Testament believer or that we can't eat bacon because pork is forbidden in the Old Testament, but we just as easily fall back into a performance-based Christianity. 
Jerry Bridges says, We all, having trusted Christ alone for our salvation, have a tendency to revert to a performance-based relationship with God. We know we are saved by faith in Christ alone, but we assume we earn God's acceptance and blessings in our daily lives by our performance. Anytime we live in such a way as to try and earn God's favor, earn his blessings by what we do, by coming back under the law, we pervert the gospel. Anytime we think that justification, being made right with God, happens because of what we do or what we don't do, what we drink or what we don't drink, what we eat or what we don't eat, we distort the gospel. Sinners are always declared righteous because of what Jesus has done, not what we do. We do not earn God's blessings in our lives because of what we do. We get God's blessings in our lives because we are united to Christ and connected to him by faith. So any form of spirituality that focuses on you and what you do for God is to be avoided. Any form of spirituality that makes you the Savior and not Jesus is to be avoided because it is not the gospel. It is a different gospel. And it doesn't matter who brings that different gospel. It is to be avoided. Even if it's your favorite preacher that you listen to on the radio. These false teachers at Colossae were trying to get this church to come back under the law and give them a bunch of rules to keep. Things like you can't eat that, you can't drink that, you have to celebrate the new moon mentioned in Numbers 29, you have to keep all the festivals, you have to celebrate the Sabbath and watch how much work you do on it. But all those laws in the Old Testament were preparing us for and pointing us to Jesus. They were, as Paul says in verse 17, a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. They were shadows, but the reality is Jesus. He is the one that we are to find life and fulfillment in. Listen, it's Mother's Day. You don't love your mother's shadow, do you? You love your mom, don't you? You don't go see your mom today and say, stand in the sunlight. Oh, look at your shadow, mom. I just love your shadow. I mean, I like you, but it's your shadow. The Old Testament laws are good, but they were a shadow of Jesus. We're pointing us to him, our Savior. And this is why the Colossians should not let anyone try to disqualify them and bring them back under the Mosaic law. In fact, it wasn't just the law that was being pushed by these false teachers. They were also trying to sprinkle in a little bit of mysticism too. Look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. These false teachers were promoting the worship of angels. And they claimed to have these visions. They would see things. Tell the Colossians, this is the vision that we had. And they were puffed up in their minds because they were so, quote unquote, spiritual. But listen, anytime you mix in mystical elements into your worship, you lose your connection to the head, namely Jesus. And if we lose sight of Jesus, 
If we lose our connection to Christ alone, if we start to believe that Jesus plus something equals everything, then we will stop growing as a Christian. You cannot be nourished by falsehood. You cannot be knit together as one body with other believers if you bring in other elements. It has to be Christ alone. But if we keep our eyes on Jesus, we will grow as Christians. If you stay connected to Christ through his word, by his spirit, in his church, in community with other believers, you will grow. This is where you grow. If you focus on your Savior, not your behavior, then you will grow spiritually. And that growth comes from God, not you. If you neurotically obsess over your spiritual growth, am I growing enough? Am I producing enough fruit? If you neurotically obsess over your sanctification, neurotically obsess over your spiritual progress, you will not grow. You will only grow if you focus on Jesus, if you stay connected to the head of the body. Avoid anyone who says that Christ is not enough. Avoid anyone who says that you need to have supernatural experiences and see visions. Avoid anyone who suggests that rigid forms of spirituality where you deny your body of food and drink in order to experience more of God. That's asceticism. It involves denying yourself of physical pleasures like food, drink, sleep in order to experience more of God. Those people are out there and they're in the church at Colossae. Now, those disciplines might be beneficial. Fasting can be beneficial. Cutting out sugar can be beneficial. You fill in the blank. But the minute we start saying that those things make us more spiritual or get us closer to God and fill us up with more of God, then we are in danger of drifting from the gospel. Because what did Paul say in chapter 2, verse 9? We have already been filled in him. We have all of God that we will ever need. There's no way you get more of God by doing anything. You have all of God because you have been filled in him, Paul says, Colossians 2.9. In fact, God gave us many good things to enjoy in this world, not to deny. He's given us all kinds of things to enjoy. What does Paul say in 1 Timothy 6.17? God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God has given us all kinds of food and drink to enjoy. He's given us taste buds so that we eat things and our mouth just explodes with all the flavors. Yes, we should use wisdom as we enjoy all the things that God has given us. I don't recommend eating Krispy Kreme every day. But I also don't recommend fasting for 10 days straight either. We should avoid anyone who tries to say that you are more spiritual if you avoid certain foods, avoid certain drinks, or do certain disciplines as if that gets us any closer to God. It doesn't. You've been filled in Him. Listen, there is a lot of freedom in the Christian life. For some people, that's a scary statement, so I'm going to have to say it again. There is a lot of freedom in the Christian life. 
We have God's word which guides our lives and sets boundaries for us and gives us parameters to live within, but there are also a lot of freedoms. And wouldn't you expect this from a God who gives us everything to enjoy? Some people are free to drink wine with their meals and some not. Obviously, Scripture condemns drunkenness, so there's the boundary, but there's a lot of freedom. Some parents choose to homeschool, others public school. Some people are free to listen to the Beach Boys, others just limit themselves to Christian artists. There's a lot of freedom in the Christian life, as it should be, right? And that freedom is found within the parameters of Scripture. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, do not go beyond what is written. We don't go beyond Scripture, but we are free to make real choices within the boundaries that Scripture gives us. We are free to enjoy all the things that God has freely provided us with to enjoy. Commenting on this, Richard Pratt says this, When the Bible does not tell us precisely what to think, do, or feel in a particular situation, we have a measure of liberty. We must not use that freedom as an excuse to violate what scriptures teach, but we also must never allow our conscience to be violated by the legalism of those who who insist that we follow rules that go beyond the scriptures. But we also must recognize that the Bible does not specify in utter detail what we are to do in the particular circumstances we face in our lives. It draws parameters, but it does not pinpoint issues in minute detail. Can you imagine how many volumes it would take to give specific instructions for every situation human beings face? The Bible only describes general policies. It provides broad brushstrokes of what God would have us do with our lives. Beyond these teachings, we live with liberty of conscience. Christians who bind their own feet and the feet of others with long lists of precise rules that go far beyond the Bible run serious risks. They begin to think their lists are equal in authority with the Bible. Moreover, they soon eliminate the need for the personal ministry of the Holy Spirit. After all, they have worked out the details for themselves. Walking in Christ has become reduced to following a set of rules. Listen, the life of a disciple is a walk of freedom. Not rule keeping, not towing the line, not neurotically obsessing over your behavior. Christ came to set us free, Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ set you free. It doesn't say it is for rule keeping that Christ set you free. It is for freedom. It's a life of enjoying God, enjoying his creation, and not neurotically obsessing over your performance. And so here's the hard work of sanctification. One of the hardest parts about being a disciple is this. It's to think less of me, less of my performance, and more of Jesus and his performance for me. One of the hardest things to do as a Christian is to think less of you, Less of your performance, less of your obedience, less of your sanctification, and instead think more about Jesus. The irony is that we actually get worse when we focus on ourselves. 
We become self-absorbed over our performance. We become self-centered as we are consumed with our behavior. And when the goal of our Christian life becomes conquering our sin, instead of soaking in the conquest of our Savior, then what actually happens is we begin to shrink spiritually. When our focus becomes conquering sin and not the conquest of our Savior over our sin, we don't conquer sins as much as we think. And we won't grow. We will we'll shrink into ourselves. We will curve inward. Now, hear me out, okay? Before you send that email that you've already drafted up, okay? Hear me out. Are we called to hate sin? Yes. We will look at that in a few weeks in Colossians chapter 3 where Paul says, Put to death what is earthly in you. We will talk about that. So we're not against killing sin. But we need to understand that our holiness is not the focus of the Christian life. Our holiness is not the focus of the Christian life. Jesus Christ and what he has done for us is the focus of the Christian life. And it flows out of being in union with him. And that's why the doctrine of union with Christ is so important. Because all that we have and all that we are as believers flows out of that union. Now let me ask you a question. What if your holiness was the point of Christianity? What if your obedience and your commitment was the point of Christianity? Would you feel good right now? Probably not. And I don't either. Why? Because I, like you, am such a failure. We all make our commitments to the Lord, and we all don't keep them. We, we all tell God, please forgive me, Lord, I promise, I'll never do that again. And what happens? You do it again, right? That means then that Christianity is not first about us getting better, or about our obedience, or about our performance, or our daily victory over sin. As important as these are, hear me out, those are important. Christianity is first about Jesus Discipleship is remembering what Jesus has done, not what I must do. And then here's the irony. We actually start obeying God when we quit neurotically obsessing over our performance. Did I read the Bible today? Did I pray enough? Did I do enough? When we quit obsessing over our need to be holy and we begin to focus on Christ's holiness then we actually start becoming holy. Because if you focus on you, how your Christian life is, if you focus on your obedience and become neurotically obsessive about that, one of two things will happen. Number one, you get prideful. If you look at yourself and all that you do for God, then pride can become a cancer growing in your heart and you become like the Pharisees. Or you get depressed If you look at yourself and all that you don't do for God, depression, sadness, guilt, despair will overwhelm you. Listen, do, 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 do does not change us. What changes us is done, 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 done. What changes us is what has been done by Christ. What changes us is what he's done. That prompts change. That prompts transformation. That prompts obedience. When you realize, he's done all this for me, 
I don't want to sin. I want to honor him. Now, please understand, I am not saying that obedience isn't important because it is. Obedience to God's commands is important. Let me say that again. Obedience to God's commands in his word is important, very important. What I'm saying is that what gets you into heaven and what keeps you there is not what you do. It all hinges on what Jesus has already done for you. So yes, our obedience is an important part of our lives. And if you think it's not, then you just keep living any way you want to live and then let's see what happens. If you don't think you should obey God's word, just watch what happens to your life. You know what will happen? Your life will be a mess. If you let sin reign in your mortal body, Romans 6.12 where Paul says don't let it, If you let sin reign in your mortal body with no regard for God's holiness and you just have a flippant attitude towards sin, your life will start to fall apart. Yes, God will still love you. Yes, you'll still be forgiven. Yes, the inheritance will still be yours because Jesus has secured it for you, but your life will become hell on earth. The consequences of sin may eat you alive. If you totally punt on obedience, your life will become a mess. That is a guarantee. If you live contrary to God's word, have a flippant attitude towards his word, your life will be a mess, absolutely. But the point that I'm trying to make this morning is that the point of Christianity is not your obedience. The point of Christianity is Jesus' obedience. If your obedience was the point of Christianity, let me ask you, think about it. If your obedience was the point of Christianity, let me ask you, How's that working out for you? How was your week? Did you do anything that you were ashamed of? Well, of course you did because you're a sinner. You got mad at that little lady slowly pushing her basket in Walmart because she was slowing you down. How dare you get mad at that little old lady? She can barely move. She just needs some cat food. But you got mad at her, didn't you? Because she was taking too much time. If your obedience was the point of Christianity, how is that working out for you? We are sinners and we sin, so we all did things this week that we are ashamed of. And that's why obedience, though very important, is not the focus of our lives. Jesus says, if if obedience was the focus of the Christian life, one of two things happen. We either become prideful or we get full of despair because we know we're not measuring up. We died with Christ And that's what should motivate us. His death, as Paul says in verse 20. Look there now. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in them, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul reminds the Colossians that they died to the things of this world when they were crucified with Christ. They were cut off from Adam through the circumcision of Christ on the cross. They now share in Christ's victory over demonic powers, over the elemental spirits of the world. Paul uses the phrase here, and he used it back in verse 18. We saw that that Greek word stoicheia uh, that Paul uses as 
elemental spirits here was used in the ancient world for spirits or demonic forces. So this false teaching that was creeping into the Colossian church had its source in Satan. It's human teaching, human precepts, man-made rules, but it's really demonic. This is why we don't have to submit to man-made rules that are not found in Scripture. Rules that say, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You can't eat that, you can't drink that, you can't wear that. Christians and churches are notorious for coming up with some crazy ideas that somehow makes them more holy than others. And you've probably heard these before. There are many. Sadly, Christians and churches can be abusive when laying down rules like this. For instance, in his book, Churches That Abuse, Ron Enroth describes a few of these churches and pastors. Let me read a couple portions from his book, all describing the abusive Colossians 2-like tactics of you can't do this, you can't do this, that had been employed by pastors and by churches. Here's one example. A church had something called Operation Rescue in which members were instructed to report each other's faults to the pastor. Would you like that? I wouldn't. I don't want to know what you do. i got my own stuff to worry about. Also, a dress code for both men and women was also begun, as well as a dietary code restricting pork, shellfish, and alcohol, all based on the pastor's interpretation of Old Testament laws. Oreo cookies were outlawed because they contained lard. Interracial dating was forbidden. Certain Christian books and bookstores were to be avoided because they promoted false creeds. Celebrating Christmas and Easter was discouraged because the pastor considered them secular holidays. Engagements could not be announced until the pastor's wife was informed. Every indication of a negative or rebellious attitude or unapproved opinion was attributed to demons. Then there was the white room experience. Introduced by the pastor's wife as a result of a vision she supposedly received from God. This mystical place enabled one to become especially intimate with the Lord, but could only be reached through a progression of different stages of spiritual maturity. That's a real example from a real church, abusing their people by coming up with all these rules that they can and can't do, telling them that they can get closer to God if they just do this. Here's another example. They are discouraged from reading newspapers, watching television, and meeting with members of other churches. They buy no insurance, wear neither glasses nor contact lenses, and remove the seatbelts from their cars, preferring to live by faith alone. No seatbelt, no glasses, and they're driving. (laughs) Wives are expected to be submissive, obedient homemakers who practice no birth control. All members are to put the body or the church first and their familial relationships second. Members are told to pray only once concerning a matter to avoid vain repetition. Members are not to swear any oaths in a court of law and they are prohibited from consulting attorneys. Another sentence I cut out was that they weren't allowed to be intimate with their spouses except for uh, wanting to have children. Otherwise, it would bring on lust. These are things that fall under our passage today. Things like, do not eat Oreos. Do not eat bacon. 
Do not drink alcohol. Don't get engaged unless the church approves. You can't marry interracially. You can't celebrate Christmas or Easter. No watching Netflix. These are all man-made rules and regulations that may, I doubt it, may have an appearance of wisdom, but they have no power to stop the sin nature. Only the Holy Spirit can enable us to fight sin. Rigid asceticism does not empower you to fight the sinful urges that reside in the heart of every single sinner. Only the gospel can enable you with power to fight sin. Only by gazing upon Jesus will you want to live for him. So focus on your Savior, not on your behavior. That's how you grow as a Christian. An unhealthy focus and fascination on your sin and your failures will not prompt you to Christian growth. You must look outside of yourself. You must look to Jesus. You must rehearse the gospel. Get this. Christian growth does not happen through behaving better, but by believing better. Christian growth does not happen through behaving better, It's by believing better. Growth happens as we believe everything that Jesus has already done for us. Growth happens as we believe this is the word of God and I will stay within the boundaries and the parameters of it. But there's a lot of freedom within those boundaries and parameters. Growth happens when we actually believe the gospel that Christ died for us. Growth happens when we actually believe that God is good and that he's given us all things to enjoy. Growth happens when we actually believe that he is as gracious and merciful and kind as he says he is. Do you believe? Do you believe that he's good? Do you believe that he's kind? Do you believe that he's a God who came up with taste buds? And has given you all these things so that when you eat and drink, your mouth explodes when you pair certain flavors? Do you believe in that God? That God sent his son Jesus to die for you. Do you believe that? Have you placed your faith in Christ? You can't today. Just admit that you're a sinner. Say, Jesus, have mercy on me. Let's close with something that Steve Brown said. He said, we Christians have a neurotic side. You know it's true. There is something about religion that makes us weird. We watch only Christian movies. We read only Christian books. We wear only Christian underwear. And then we wonder why people think our godliness is strange. So living as a free Christian is, in a sense, and at least for us, it's being normal, doing normal things and avoiding the rules that surround our subculture. Sometimes we as Christians just aren't normal, and it hurts our witness. Others don't recognize us for who we are, followers of Jesus Christ, because there is so much other stuff standing in the way. The principle that I got from Jesus is this. Live your life with such freedom that uptight Christians doubt your salvation. Let's do that. Be free. Keep your eyes on Jesus. 
Enjoy him, enjoy his creation, enjoy good food and good drinks and good music and good movies and whatever good thing God has given us to freely enjoy. So be free. Live your life with such freedom that you're fun to be around. And you actually start enjoying Jesus and you want to live for him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that You're not an uptight God. You are free, and we want to be more free. Thank you that you've given us taste buds. Thank you that you've given us eyes and ears and nerve endings. Thank you for making our bodies to enjoy the world that you have so freely given to us. Thank you for giving us a high-definition world, not a black-and-white boring world, but just a world popping with color and creatures and sounds and so many good things, Lord. Thank you for setting us free. Help us to enjoy all that you've given to us, to give you glory for being such a gracious, good, kind creator who loves his creation. Lord, help us to stay within the parameters and boundaries of your word. We want to honor you. We want to obey you. But within those parameters, Lord, help us to be free. Help us to not fall into the trap of legalism and listening to man-made rules that the subculture of evangelicalism is trying to cram down our throats. But let us walk in freedom. And then let unbelievers see that we're very normal and we're very free. And then help us to share the hope that we have with them. So today, Lord, may we be free and enjoy you. In your name we pray. Amen.